God in heaven, we worship you today as our king, as the one who is holy and worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory, Lord. And yet you, you are a king that is unexpected. You are one who is present with us, not just a king who is on high, but one who came to suffer and to serve and who loves us, Lord, and who calls us into being citizens, to be, to be the people of God, people who are formed and shaped by you and your values, to look like you. God, you, you're full of mercy, full of righteousness, full of justice. Lord, we thank you for the way that you are our healer in our lives, in our hearts, and in our communities. And we just ask that you would be so present in our church family, that as you have invited us to be adopted as your children, that you would grow us into children that look like you. And so that the community around us would also be transformed by the love that we've experienced, Lord. I ask that today you would open our hearts to receive your word and your message, that we would be humble, that we would hear from you, and that we would learn to love you more. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, kids, you are dismissed. You can go ahead and head to your classrooms. And as they're doing that, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles, and we are going to look at the passage we'll be spending some time in this morning. You can open up to Matthew 1, verse 1. Uh, it'll be up on the screen, and then if you have your Matthew journals, it'll be on page 10. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So we begin in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salman, Salman the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's word. Melissa for reading the passage. It was very strategic asking her to read that passage instead of me. She pronounced all the names pretty correctly. Well, good morning, everybody. I'll try that again. That was a sneak attack. Good morning, everybody. My name is Eric Solomon. If you don't know me, um, I get to serve as the pastor of this congregation here. And this morning as we begin, I want you to consider a question with me. The question on the screen Behind you, what's, what's your last name? Now, you don't have to shout it out because nowadays, last names are really an easy way to tell the difference between the 15 Eric's or 20 Sophia's that are in a group. But in the past, and yes, still in many cultures around the world today, a last name carries more than what makes you different. A last name carries a, a history with it, a reputation, a family. Kind of like the main character in the Pixar movie, Coco, Miguel. He finds himself resisting the family story he's heard his whole life and uncovering more to the story than he ever imagined, if you've seen that movie. But while I disagree with the movie's uh, representation of death and the afterlife, I have to admit when I've watched that movie over and over again with my girls singing all the songs, I was moved by the surprising insights that it makes about family. How family history can affect, for better, or for worse, generations for generations. Maybe you're not like the millions of people who are uh, hunting for their family tree on websites like Ancestry.com, or like those people who put you know, 23andMe DNA testing on their uh, Christmas list. We all have a history. We all have a, a, a past, a family history. And like most real things in life, our family history tends to be, shall we say, complicated? Many of us have family photos with people that are cut out of them, or people we wish were cut out of them, or maybe there are photos that we have been cut out of. There are skeletons in the closet, right alongside the accomplishments we like to bring out to show off about our family history, right, the origin story of the immigrants who braved the ocean brought our family here in the first place, or the farmers who worked the land, or refugees who fled everything, there are Black sheep and altered timelines and people we don't talk about and people we love to talk about. So what about you? What's your last name? Who's in your family tree and who do you wish wasn't? If you could pick a family tree, whose family tree would you pick? This morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series that's entitled The King and His Kingdom. And for an extended period of time, we're going to be tracing the story of King Jesus and the the King of Kings and the kind of kingdom that he brings through this particular book, this particular gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And so this morning, we begin at the beginning, where all good stories start. But if we're honest, when we read this text, it's not how all good stories tend to start doesn't tend to grip us just reading name after name after name. Uh, A genealogy, a a, a legal documented way of tracing family history to prove identity. 
But I'm hoping and praying that by the end of this sermon, you'll see why this was the perfect way for Matthew to start his gospel. But before we get into it, before we take a look at the king's credentials, if you will, I want to take a look at what this book is as a whole so we can kind of get our bearings here at the start of this sermon series. So before we step into this book, I want us to understand what it actually is so you can actually get the full weight of why this genealogy is such a big deal. So here we start. What is this book? Well, you've heard me already call it a gospel. Well, then Eric, what's a gospel? Okay, you're just changing terms here. Well, a gospel is good news. More more specifically, it's an account of the good news. Right? It is telling us about the good news. It is a record. A gospel is the record of the gospel. It is the kind of book in the Bible whose main purpose is to communicate the good news of Jesus, the good news of his kingdom, of his salvation, of his resurrecting grace. Basically, every gospel, and there are four of them if you look in your table of contents, tell the story about the good news of Jesus Christ, that good news that centers around Jesus Christ which sometimes makes us read these books, these gospels, more like uh, biographies, more, more like uh, chronological biographies, biographies, as if each, each book is tracing what Jesus did on Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and then Thursday and then Friday and then week in and week out. We read them like they're a chronology, a precise timeline trying to give just a historical account of Jesus' life. The problem is when you get to your reading plan and start reading the gospels, and you read the second gospel, and then the third gospel, and then the fourth, you start getting confused because you're like, these aren't in the same order. Right? One has this story before that story. This other one doesn't even have this story. And this one has stories I haven't heard. What's going on? What do we, what do, we do with that when we read the gospels? The answer is we don't do anything with that. You see, we don't have to try and fix the gospel stories to make them line up, to make sense, because the problem is not in the gospels. The problem is our understanding of what these books are trying to do, understanding what the purpose of these gospels actually are. Because you see, the four gospels, they're not chronological biographies the way we would think of them. These four gospels are are not trying to be a day-by-day account of of Jesus' life. A better understanding of these gospels is to understand them as historical theological stories, Historical, which means that they actually happened. They are telling us history. They, they are historical accounts. They're not made up. They're not trying to exaggerate to make Jesus or Christianity look better. In fact, a lot of the stories kind of do the opposite, which kind of our text this morning. We'll get to that. But what they're, they're doing is they're, they're, they're trying to give a historical account, but they're doing it theologically. Well, Eric, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that they're not just trying to give a history of Jesus' birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection. What they're trying to do is explain the meaning of them, why they mattered, what was God doing, why did God come, and why did he have to live the way he did and die the way he did and come back to life the way he did. They're trying to communicate to us about God, and the vehicle that they're using is the vehicle of story. This is why one gospel writer can have this story before that teaching and another one can have a story back to back because they're not trying to give a play by play. They're answering theological questions and they're communicating theological truth. An example, before I bore you by just talking about all this stuff. In John 3, Nicodemus shows up and we get the the famous uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. In John 3, there's a story where, where Nicodemus, one of these Pharisees who's supposed to understand the story of Jesus and, and, and expect Jesus, comes up to him and he's asking a bunch of questions and he really doesn't understand what Jesus is telling him. And he kind of leaves dazed and confused. The very next story in John 4 
is Jesus actually approaching a woman at, at a well, a woman who was outcast of society. And as Jesus starts to explain to her what's going on, she doesn't really understand either, but as she kind of grows in her understanding, all of a sudden she receives the message of Jesus with joy and actually leaves to go tell her whole town about Jesus. And the reason John is putting those stories together is he wants us to see that those who should get it aren't, and those who shouldn't get it are. This is a different kind of king bringing a different kind of kingdom. It is not a chronological biography. It is a historical, theological story. The Gospels are not accidentally put together. They are intentionally put together stories that are trying to communicate history, what actually happened, and theology, what it means. And so with all of that in mind, when we step into the Gospel of Matthew, you might be like, okay, Eric, I'm tracking. What is the Gospel of Matthew trying to communicate then? Well, the Gospel of Matthew can be summed up in the title we've given this sermon series, The King and His Kingdom. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about Jesus and they talk about him as the king, but none of them are working as hard as Matthew to emphasize his royalty and his radical upside-down life-changing kingdom. And so who is this king that Matthew is trying to shine the spotlight on? Now we get to our text. Look at the very first verse of our text. Matthew answers right from the beginning. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Who is this king? He is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, which is a a Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, meaning God saves. The Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, a title that by this point in history among God's people, it had come to mean this long-awaited, forever-hoped-for, desperately-expected rescuer. You see, by the time that Jesus shows up, the people of God have actually been living in, in God's silence for centuries. He hasn't spoken He hasn't reassured his people. He's not really sent prophets and and judges or kings or any kind of help since they have been carried off to exile for their disobedience. And while their story leaves a spark burning at the end, it just feels like that spark is about to go out. And that's why the one that Matthew is writing about is introduced as Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. You see, he's not just any family member. He's not just uh, uh, some kind of revolutionary trying to come do something different. He's a member of the royal line. You see, by this point, anybody from the people of God who are are reading this genealogy are, are starting to be filled with nostalgic flashbacks. You know how you get when you smell a particular smell of your childhood or, or you hear a story that was a kid's story that your mom read to you every single night or a song that she sang to you every night? They are getting this nostalgic flashback from the stories that their parents told them as they grew up. Stories of Joshua who led them into the promised land. Of, of David who fought God's enemies and established a kingdom faithful to the God who brought them out of Egypt. Matthew fuels their nostalgia with this opening line. After centuries of silence, this Jesus is the answer to God, God's people's cry. How long, O oh Lord, will you, will you forget us forever? No. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, has come. And not just the son of David, it's the son of Abraham. Not just a royal descendant, but a true Jewish descendant, which in the days of Roman occupation and exile doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, but we're going to see as we read the gospel that it means a lot to Matthew, and it means a lot more than just a a purity to a bloodline, because you see, what it meant to the people of God 
what Matthew's intending, and he will draw out all the way until his great commission at the very end of the gospel is this promise of blessing that God made to Abraham for all nations of the earth. That, that purity of faith, not DNA, is what makes someone a child of Abraham, part of this family. And we needed a true son of Abraham to drive that, drive that point home and return the people of God to their true purpose. Who is this king? He is Jesus the Messiah, the royal son of David, the blessed son of Abraham. And so if you've got a pen or a pencil and you're taking notes this morning, I want you to actually, in your journal, underline those three titles in verse 1. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because Matthew will take those titles and flesh them out the rest of this story. Throughout this entire gospel, these are the titles that he's going to use to explain to us who Jesus is and communicate theologically about what God is doing through him. And we see it starting with this genealogy. So here are my three points this morning. In this genealogy, we are introduced to the Savior we've been waiting for, the people we've been hoping for, and the king we never expected. So I want to show you how this genealogy throughout this week has made me both shout for joy and wipe tears from my eyes. And I don't mean that it's just a preacher who's a nerd about these things. I mean that this text has something to say to us this morning where Matthew starts to unravel the three titles of Jesus weaving in and out of this record of names. Look at that first verse again. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. I'm going to pause right here and I'm going to cheat a little bit. You can turn the page in your journals. There's a verse I want you to look at, Matthew 1.21, and I know this is for next week, but I'm preaching next week, so I'm kind of stepping on my own toes. In Matthew 1.21, this is what Matthew, the, the text says about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He is the one that we've been waiting for, Matthew says. The Savior that will save us from the disease that is far worse than anything our bodies have ever encountered and is killing us from the inside out. He is the Savior we've been waiting for. By his very name, he proclaims who he is and what he's going to do that he saves. And this expectation of salvation goes back even not just the next page, but all the way back to the very first pages of Scripture. You see, in Genesis, sin entered the world, and then God promised that he would make everything right again, that he was going to fix it. And the way he promised it in Genesis 3.15 was that he would crush the head of the sin that was so intent on killing us, that he would defeat the snake that introduced us, introduced chaos, introduced us to this disobedience that we have with the Lord. This is the expectation that Jesus is born into. This is the Savior we've been waiting for, the expectation that Jesus, his, his name places on him. The Savior we've been waiting for, the expectation he came to fulfill. He came to save us from our sins. He is Jesus, the Messiah. And so we step right into the story of Jesus with our expectations realigned with God right from the beginning. Because this Jesus is more than a good man. He's more than just some charismatic teacher. He's more than a revolutionary. He is the Savior of the world the rescuer of our souls, the snake-crushing, sin-destroying king who has come to save his people. And if that's not enough, he's not only the savior we've been waiting for. You see, Matthew is going to make it very clear with another title that in him we join the people we've also been hoping for. 
So he is the Savior we've been waiting for, and the rest of the Gospel of Matthew will explain what that looks like. But here at the very beginning in this genealogy, Matthew moves on pretty quickly to these two titles he gave us. And so I want you to come back to that text, and I want you to start at Matthew 1, verse 2, to see how he actually introduces us to the people we've been hoping for with a name. Abraham was the father of Isaac. You see, Jesus the Messiah is the son of Abraham. Not just the one who's going to save us from our sins, but the one that's going to be a blessing to the whole world. Let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 22, we read this promise from God to Abraham about his people. This is what God says. Verse 17, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, through your family, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. That's what God is promising Abraham from the very beginning. Blessing. God tells him that he will bless him with more kids than he can count, not just so that his house is full and his inheritance is secure, but so that the people of God can communicate the blessing of God and fill the world with God's blessing. That's the point from the very beginning of God's people. Not just to try to create another nation. It's not that the, the people of God are trying to be some kind of lifeboat running away from a sinking ship and trying to save some people out of the world. No, God is trying to, through God's people, actually bring a people to that sinking ship to start repairing that sinking ship. God is on a rescue mission and he is using his people to do that, blessing the world through them. This is the people we've been hoping for, the people of God. But it's not like what we thought it would be. Look down at your journals again. Look at the people in this family tree. You see, the son of Abraham's family is a lot more messed up than we could have ever imagined. You don't know what I'm talking about? Well, let's go through these names, right? They have more than one black sheep, more than enough. We uh, don't talk about Bruno people in here. Men and women who were sinners like us who were outsiders like us. I'll start with the guys. Men who were sinners like us. Because we don't have to go very far to run into the very first name, Abraham, who, yes, obeyed and went when God called him to leave his family and go into a nation that he's calling him, which is kind of a, a, a crazy thing that the Lord is asking him to do. But he's also the same guy that lied about his wife and got his wife into some sticky situations because of his fear and his deceit. His son Isaac actually followed in his footsteps and did the same thing with his wife when he got scared. Jacob's name literally means deceiver. Judah sold his brother into slavery. David, okay, David was nicknamed the man after God's own heart, but that didn't stop him from using his own power to seduce another man's wife, to assassinate another man so he could take his wife for himself. Just look at the text. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's almost as if Matthew wants to make it clear in this moment that David's son came not from David's wife, but the wife that he took, the wife that he widowed. We don't know the story of every man in this list, but we do know that this list has all kinds of men in it. Men who had very little good that was recorded about them. Men who had both incredible faithfulness and horrific sins recorded against them. And then other men who were faithful to God in some beautiful ways, like Boaz, who's named in the book of Ruth as a man of standing, or Josiah, who's a righteous king who rids the people of idols and calls them back to faithfulness in God's law. The family tree of Jesus could go on and on, but it is filled not with a prim and proper tied up in a nice neat bow of people. 
The family tree of the son of Abraham is filled with sinners like us. Broken people like you and like me. But it's also filled with outsiders like us. I'll keep pressing my point because there are outsiders that we see most clearly in what I would consider, what many consider, the most unusual part of this text. You see, Matthew is deliberately including women in his genealogy. Now you're like, Eric, why does, why does that matter? Well, because genealogy in this day and age had women only rarely included. The family line was most often traced through men. It didn't mean that women were not ever included, but it was at least a rarity. But what is even more difficult to understand is why in the world Matthew included these women, these particular women, because you notice that he doesn't include every woman. Matthew is trying to make a point here. See, most of these women were not even original to the family tree. At first glance, it actually doesn't look like much fruit is being born on their branches until we take a closer look. And we see this beautiful tapestry that the Lord has been weaving throughout history with strings that other people would be too embarrassed or ashamed to use to build a picture more beautiful than we could ever imagine. On closer look, we see that these women were outsiders who became insiders, not by their blood, but by faith, by their faithfulness. And it is his faithfulness, his appearance in this bloodline that made all of it worth it that ties the strings together to help us see what God has been doing throughout the centuries from generation to generation. So let me actually take you through the story of these women. We're not going to be able to get to all the details, but I want to give you at least the broad strokes so that as we go through, you might understand what Matthew is doing in this very first chapter of his gospel. Look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was who? A little louder. Who was her, their mother? Tamar is the first woman listed in this genealogy. Her story is recorded in Genesis 38, and since we're not going to get to all the details, I want to encourage you to read that story. I want to warn you, it's a little bit scandalous. But it is a story of injustice, of brokenness, of deception. Let me, let me clarify what you're reading in verse 3. You see, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, but he was also the father-in-law of Tamar. The story goes that Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, but that son was wicked and the Lord killed him for it, risking the end of this family line. And so the next son is supposed to take care of Tamar according to God's law, but he's also wicked and the Lord kills him too. And so now there's only one son left and Judah is freaking out. He has potentially some kind of cursed lady that jumped into his family line and he is not about to follow God's law and risk his final son. And so he lies to her and he sends her shamefully back to her father's house. And then he conveniently forgets her, leaving her in shame and risking not just the family line, but the justice of God. Fast forward through a lot, Judah is traveling when he comes across a woman that he thought was a prostitute. Scandalous, I told you. Temptation leads to sin and Judah sleeps with her and he promises payment that he doesn't have and so she asks for collateral. What he does not know is that this is actually his daughter-in-law, Tamar, in disguise. Not the best scenario for anybody involved. Months later, Tamar is found out as her belly begins to grow two boys. And the rumors reach Judah and he demands that she be punished. Ripped from the home he sent her back to. Burned alive for her transgression. But in a twist of, uh, shall we say, M. Night Shyamalan proportions. Tamar brings out the collateral that she had asked for. 
that Judah left with her when he thought she was just a prostitute. And she explains, the man that I slept with owns these items. Do you think you could identify these, Judah? Judah's jaw drops and in an unexpected confession declares her to be more righteous than he is. No, none of this is clean and none of this is kosher, but Tamar did what Judah refused to do and fulfilled the law of providing an heir for her dead husband, security for herself, preserving the family line. So without excusing sin, what is clear from this story is that God from the very beginning was at work even in the middle of sin and brokenness, in the middle of family secrets. It could not stop his plans. Like the brother Judah sold into slavery once told his brothers, listen, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so in his sovereignty and in his providence, God has been painting a family portrait despite that family's sins, despite that family's failures, despite that family's deceit, but he hasn't even been trying to hide it. He's still painting the portrait with the same colors. Look further down to the next woman in verse 5. Rahab. A prostitute, right? Like Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, but, but Rahab was actually a prostitute. You can read her story in Joshua 2 when the people of God actually send these spies to check out the land that God promised them. Rahab uh, encounters them and she not only finds them out, but she hides them from her own country and their army. She lies for them and she sends the army in a different direction. Why does she do this? Well, Joshua 2 records her words. I know that the Lord has given you this land that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Did you catch what she's doing? She's confessing their God as the true God. Thousands of years later in the New Testament text, her name shows up not just once, not just twice, but three times. Shows up here in this text, but then shows up again in Hebrews 11, where the writer of Hebrews tells them, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She's recorded in the hall of faith among God's people. James 2.25 says, Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Prostitute Rahab becomes righteous Rahab by faith in the one true God. Expressed in deeds for God and his people. And Matthew names this woman, a woman with a sketchy past, not part of the people of God, an outsider, a Gentile, who became a righteous woman living by faith in the line of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the people we've been hoping for. Why do I keep talking like that? Why do I keep talking about people we've been hoping for? Because this is a family for sinners like you and like me, for outsiders like you and like me, outsiders like Grandma Rahab and Grandma Tamar, outsiders like Grandma Ruth and even Grandma Bathsheba. Look at verses 5 and 6. You see, we spent time in the book of Ruth at the end of last year, so I'm not going to open up the entire story for us here. I would encourage you to read that story as well. It is a beautiful story. But Ruth is as unlikely an addition to the family tree as Rahab. Right? She is an outsider like Rahab, but her identity is not marked by prostitution. It's actually marked by incest. You see, Ruth is a Moabite. 
The Moabites are a people that descended from Abraham's nephew Lot through incest. You see, there was one night as they were escaping God's judgment that his daughters got him drunk and slept with him. And that's where the people of Moab came from. They became the mortal enemy of God's people, fighting them every step of the way. It is this Moabite who shows up in the family line of God's people. Why? Not because of her past, but because of her righteousness, her faithfulness to God. She continues a family line that's close to extinction, and it is behind Ruth that the hand of God is weaving a tapestry with colors and yarns that most people would not pick. But he does. He picks Ruth, and he even picks Bathsheba, who's not even named in this story. But her story is recorded in 2 Samuel 11, 12, 11 through 12. In that story, David the king is not where he's supposed to be. And he uses his power and his opportunity to seduce and sleep with Bathsheba. And yes, it takes two to, get, two to tango, but who says no to the king? A woman that's not his wife, who was already the wife of one of his most elite warriors, Uriah the Hittite. Matthew very clearly uses the name of Uriah here to identify Bathsheba. Maybe to point out that she's married to a Gentile, an outsider, a person that's not part of God's people by blood. Or maybe to make the point that David did not just sleep with anyone, he slept with another man's wife. And then when she conceived, he tried to cover up the pregnancy. And when that didn't work, he arranged for Uriah to be assassinated in battle. And David the adulterer became David the murderer. This is who was included in the family line of Jesus, the Messiah. His royal lineage is stained with blood, with liars and cheaters and thieves like you and I. And so when the fifth woman is finally named, it's not at all a surprise that the story of the birth of Jesus is overshadowed with concerns about her righteousness. After all, how did Mary get pregnant? She keeps talking about the Holy Spirit, but listen, I... I find that hard to believe. I mean, hasn't God been silent for centuries? Why would God speak to a girl in the backwoods of Nazareth? I hope to see that she was such a nice girl. Just goes to show that even nice girls go bad sometimes. The rumors start to swirl and threaten a family line with the darkness that has become all too familiar to this story. Except this time, the darkness of rumors will become the light of salvation because Mary's pregnancy is what she says it is. She is who she says she is. Her righteousness shines through the darkness as brightly as Rahab's and Ruth's. The pain she experiences is echoed in the story of Grandma Bathsheba. The justice that Tamar longed for will finally come to pass because these are the people we hope for. Not because they are perfect, not because they have everything all together, but because when Jesus enters your family tree, he brings life and redemption with him. And everything that was meant for evil is now meant for good. Notice what Matthew is doing. He does not name who you would expect him to name. He doesn't name Sarah. He doesn't name Leah. He doesn't name Rebecca. He doesn't name these, name these matriarchs of the Hebrew family that, that, that the Hebrews would, would extol as amazing women of faith. And that's nothing against them, but Matthew is trying to point out that in Jesus' family tree, there are people who others wouldn't want. Like him. Because you see, Matthew is a tax collector writing this story. Matthew is one of the most hated people in this country at this time. He is worse than a Gentile. He is a traitor. And so when he writes this family tree, he's writing 
himself into it because Jesus called him into it. And this morning, Jesus calls you to his family tree. I want you to notice that Jesus picked a family that was not tied up in a nice, neat little bow. He picked a family with wrinkles and warts and wounds because Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. I have no idea who said this quote. Some people say it's Martin Luther. I couldn't find the source, but I think it captures what this genealogy is trying to communicate. How many of us have family secrets? Things we would never speak about. Things that that eat away at the heart of our families, let alone our own souls. Pain and brokenness and betrayal and suffering and, and skeletons that reach every time the door is cracked open. Wounds that hide infection. Jesus not only knows that same pain, he is not ashamed of it. He came for it. His very presence in this family preaches the good news of the gospel. The good news that takes on our infection and our pain, our rebellion, our crime, all of our sin, and instead of being defeated by it, he triumphs over it. He was crushed for our sin, but it could not keep him down, and we could not keep him away. Don't you see, familia? We cannot screw up God's plan either by our sin or by our shame. He is here for all of it. He enters into all of it, not just to empathize with us, but to change everything about it. His very presence in this genealogy changes everything about this family line. All of, all of your sin, everything that you were ashamed of, everything that was done by you and to you finds its healing, forgiveness, justice, and restoration in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is not ashamed of sinners like you and me. It is Jesus who is not afraid of being contaminated by our sin who came into this family not just to be with us, but to enable us to be with him forever. But in order to do that, the son of Abraham, who pointed to the people we've hoped for, a people for sinners like you and like me, had to not only come to earth and live for us, but he had to die for us. He had to come back to life for us. This is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, that he came for sinners and outsiders like you, like me, that he came into a family that's marked by sinners and outsiders in order to make sinners and outsiders into his family by faith. Faith not just in the son of Abraham, but faith in the son of David. Because he's not just a savior making a people for himself, he is also the king we never expected. You see, the genealogy of Jesus traces Jesus' family from the line of Abraham. You notice in the text, that's where he starts, but it goes through the line of David through a line of kings, both good and bad, through an exile where God judged his people for their sin, the same exile that led to the centuries of silence I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, being ruled by foreign empires, an exile that looked like the end but still had a spark, the spark of a promise that we read earlier in our our service this morning. But I'm going to read from actual text right when God made the promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, God promises King David this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, God is explaining here, David, I need you to know that this whole thing is bigger than you. 
that, that bigger, it's bigger than anything you could have ever dreamed because when you are dead and gone, my plans are gonna continue to work. This tapestry continues to be weaved and it is me, not you, David, not your sons, not your power or your name, but me, the living God of the universe who will establish the kingdom of this son forever. You see, David, kingdoms rise and fall, but this one, this one will last forever. You can count on it. That promise reverberated throughout history among God's people until it had built up an expectation that carried through the prophets of a coming king who would free his people. The problem was the same problem that the people of God had the very first time they asked for a king. They were defining a king according to their definition, not God's definition. They expected a king, like the kings that they had seen, one who would break the back of the Romans and ride in on a white horse to destroy their enemies. Instead, what they got was a king who rode in on a donkey in humility, a king who broke his back carrying the weight of our sin to his throne. Cross, the cross where he was exalted. This is the king they, and let's be honest, we never expected because this is a king who gives his life for his people who wins by losing. A king with a less than stellar family pedigree, who had a rightful claim to the throne, and yet whose throne was made of wood, carved out of wood and covered in blood, rather than made from gold covered in luxury. This king, this son of David, this Jesus, is making a better family than we could have ever dreamed of. His kingdom is better than we could have ever imagined because it is creating a family of people just like the family that he came from, sinners and outsiders that are transformed by the good news of Jesus, a family better than we could have ever imagined. This, this is, the gospel of Matthew is the story of a king of grace, a savior of mercy, a people of sin made into a people saved from sin. One of the scholars I was reading explains it like this, the family from which Jesus comes reveals the family for which he comes. Familia, don't you see this genealogy? It cries out the gospel from the very first pages of this story. It tells us that the one who is coming is different than any other rescuer, any other savior, any other king, and he is not ashamed to call sinners his own. Not afraid to call sinners home. He is not embarrassed by his family. The sovereign God of the universe, the one true king, has been weaving a tapestry in this family line that displays faithfulness and faithlessness, sinfulness and righteousness, not good enough and too good to be true. People who are, why bother, to people who are, why not? And into all of this, he says, yes and amen, I am fulfilling the promises of God. Again, do you rec- Jesus picked this family. None of us get to pick our family. This is who he picked? Who is this king? Why would he pick this family? Matthew writes in the very first verse, this is the genealogy of Jesus. And I wanted to save this for last because that word genealogy is actually the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word that starts the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. It's a word that means beginnings. It's a word that Matthew is using to describe the one who had no beginning because the Son of God has lived from eternity past and will live into eternity future. But when the Son of God took on flesh, took on the name Jesus, incarnated into the family of Abraham, the family of David, the humanity of this world, something new started. 
Who is this king? He is the king of new beginnings. It started with his incarnation, but as we track through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see that he is doing something completely new, something unexpected, something hard to believe, something incredible, a new kingdom with a new kind of king. Who is this king? He is the unexpected king. The unexpected king who makes unexpected people into his unexpected family. This is the king in his kingdom. This is the king's family. This is the good news of the king that all of us can be part of his family by faith. This is the king, the one who came to save his people from their sins, Jesus the Messiah. This is the king, the one who came to make all kinds of people into his people, the son of Abraham. This is the king, the king we never expected, doing what we never expected in order to save us, the son of David. This morning as I close and we move into communion, I want to share a story to finish our time. It's a story that Jack Miller tells of a woman who was in counseling. She was struggling with shame tied to her relationship with her father, and it was causing issues with her being able to see God as her father. And so in the course of counseling, a a memory came out that explained some of what was going on. And so she retold the story of when, as a little girl, she wanted to do something for her father, do something to show how much she loved him. And so finally, she decided to take care of something that he used every day, his, his work shirt. She put it through the wash and and took care of it and hung it up to dry, but then something happened that she didn't notice. There was a a stain on his shirt that she had caused, and she didn't even realize it. And so she stations herself at the door for when her father comes home, and she's so proud of what she's done. She cannot wait to tell him. And so then when he comes home, she leads him to where the shirt is hung up. She points to it and says, Daddy, look what I did for you. Unfortunately, In the sea of clean white, all he can see is the stain that had started to set in. And he begins to yell at her, to humiliate her, to call her names. And so as she finishes retelling her memory, the counselor asks her, what do you think Jesus would do if he was in your father's shoes? How how would he respond when he notices the stain? She thinks for a minute and then she finally answers, I think he would forgive me? A little noncommittal. It felt like the right answer, but something felt kind of strange about it. And so the the counselor leans in, and he looks her in the eyes, and he says, yes, you're right. He would forgive you for any stains that you might have caused, but you're still not seeing it. Jesus wouldn't just forgive you. He would wear the shirt because he will never be ashamed of you. Familia, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. He came for you. He is drawn to you in your sin and in your shame and whatever problems are in your life. He is not repulsed by you. He does not just try to stay away from you and keep you at a distance until you get your life right. It's why the gospel starts with the fact that Jesus actually came to this earth and became human for us. We didn't have to be holy first for Jesus to come for us. He is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of sinners. He loves us so much he included us in his family tree. And so as we approach communion and this table, I want that to be in the back of your heads as we eat and as we drink. This is what we proclaim, that the death of Jesus brought us life, that he brought us from death and sin to life in him. He accomplished all of that by dying on a cross in our place, rising from the the grave, giving us grace. He saved us. And at this table, 
We proclaim that together and we say we are family. Warts, wounds, and wrinkles. Jesus is in the process of healing us. We proclaim that not as those who are broken, but those who are in the process of healing. And so as we prepare to take this cup and this bread, I want you to reflect on that. Before we keep going, though, like we normally do, I want to give you a chance to open it up so that we can take this together so that none of us are left behind. So let's get all the crinkling out of the way and open up the bread and open up the cup. Like I said, we gather around this table as the family of Jesus. Broken sinners, rebels against God in so many ways, affected by and suffering from the sin of others. Sinners with sins of our own. But we don't gather just as the broken, we gather as the healing. As those who have found healing in Jesus, forgiveness for our sins, have confessed our sins and by faith have been saved by him. We believe what Jesus says about us, about our sins, about this gospel, that he is the only way of salvation. And so around this table, we are family by grace through faith. And so as we prepare to take and eat and raise and drink together, think on these things, reflect, pray, and and confess in prayer together, knowing that you are forgiven in Christ. This morning, if you're here and you haven't done all that and confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as we think and reflect, I want you to think and reflect about the gospel that was preached this morning that he did indeed die for your sins. This this bread and this juice, they don't save you. It is only Jesus who does that. As we take and eat and and raise and drink, we're not doing something magical. We're remembering what Jesus has done, something that was, we thought, impossible. But God came to save us and clear us of all of our sins. And so if you haven't believed that, my encouragement to you, my pleading to you is that you would believe that this morning. And then you would eat and drink with us together. But if you have believed that, this morning I encourage you to remember the gospel that saved you, the gospel that holds on to you, and the gospel that will hold on to you all the way home. Will you pray with me? Gracious King, this morning we confess and we repent before you. We confess our sins to you, our rebellion, all the ways we have set ourselves up against you and against others. We confess our pride, we confess our greed, we confess our anger and our envy, our lust and our gluttony, our apathy. There are so many ways that sin has deformed our hearts and we confess before you, not so that you might save us, but because you have already saved us. That you might continue to work our hearts by the power of your spirit. You have given us new hearts. Your word says that when you give us new hearts, we're now able to resist sin and temptation. And so we pray that you would empower us to do that by your spirit at work in us. And so as we eat this bread, we remember the sin that broke your body to save us. We remember in gratitude. We love you. Amen. Let's hold up the bread together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24 these words, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Merciful King, as we prepare to drink this cup, we remember your blood poured out for us, the blood you shed for us, the blood that fuels our new hearts with grace and with holiness. Would you continue to make us into your holy people? We know that you are coming back one day to make everything right. We also know that you have started to make everything right today. And so we pray that you would continue to work in us to restore what sin took and repair what sin broke. It is your blood that washes away our sins, and we trust in nothing but your blood, King Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's raise the cup together. Paul continues telling us in 11 verse 25, In the same way also he, being Jesus, took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Paul ends his passage saying this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Familia, at this table, we remember the gospel that saved us. We declare the gospel that can save anyone by faith, and we proclaim the gospel that will see us all the way home when Jesus returns to make everything right again. May this table point us to the greater meal that we'll have in heaven together someday. Until then, will you pray with me? Holy and loving King, this morning we praise you for what you have done, for loving us, for giving your life for us, for living in us and empowering us by the Spirit with the same resurrection power that brought you back from the dead. We remember today what you have done for us. We remember our freedom that was purchased by your blood. We remember in this rhythm of communion that you have made us family. That in this family, we don't have to be perfect or put together. No, you are the one who makes us perfect and puts us back together. You have brought sinners and outsiders into your family and made strangers, not just into friends, but into children, siblings. We praise you, King of Kings, as we reenact the gospel in communion. And as we turn to sing your praises together, we sing in gratitude. May your grace and your love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all as we thank you that you have freed us and we thank you that you have rescued us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen and amen.